0: Acts chapter 26, you know, a testimony, The testimony can be a very powerful thing the Lord uses to spread the gospel, and testimony is something that you'll always know, and you can always tell someone, and we see the Lord use Paul's testimony in a mighty way, Here And we started last week in Acts chapter 26, and we saw that there were two main divisions. We only got to the first division last week was Paul's testimony. And then the second half, which we're going to deal with tonight, is the response to that. We saw a variety of ways through Acts uh, as the Lord's church, as uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus, we all are in ways in which we see the gospel presented to people. Paul has shown us a variety of ways to, to preach the gospel, to teach the lifestyle witness, or or rather it is, it is on personal, one-on-one conversations he's had. And we also see him use his testimony in this chapter to spread the gospel. And so we see uh, throughout Acts the variety of ways which which we can share the gospel of jesus christ but we also see a variety of ways which people respond to the gospel of jesus christ now one of the things about paul's testimony that that is just amazing and i I don't know how many of you all i know uh, all of you all are saved and you have a testimony Um, if you don't have a testimony you're you're not saved you you, everyone should have a testimony Um, of when they were saved. But um, what we see Paul do, it's an amazing transformation which God has done in Paul's life. You know, think about this transformation. Now, at the beginning of Acts chapter 26, we see him before King Agrippa, and he, and Agrippa is more about, he's more curious about what Paul has to say. And so we see... and. I'm going to set this up for you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go on. We see that this pomp and pageantry and, and everything, King Agrippa has come in, and you know that uh, they love the, the do that. It's all through the Herods. It must be you know a biological thing, because all of them love the, the pomp and circumstance and the pageantry of, of all of that. And so here comes this entourage. It's, it's not just Roman officials that are there with uh, Festus, but we also see Agrippa, King Agrippa, with his uh, sister, uh, his sister-girlfriend, or whatever it is, um, and we see that it's more like, this isn't, I, I know I called this Paul's trial before Agrippa, but Paul's trial's already over. And all of this is, is Festus needs something to write about Paul to Nero, because remember Paul had appealed to Caesar during Festus' trial of him, and so now that's done, that's it, They, they have no more authority, there's no more official thing that Festus or Agrippa can do, they can't let Paul go, and they can't condemn him, because Paul has appealed to Caesar now. And so now Festus is like, well, I have found, I've listened to all the evidence, I've listened to everything, and I still have nothing that I can write down on paper to send Paul with to to Caesar saying these are the things which Paul was found guilty of or charged of because there's been nothing. The Jews could not produce any evidence of what they charged Paul for. So that's why he, he grabs Agrippa and Agrippa was known as kind of the, even though he was king, he was the all things Jewish authority. He was um, the the, the go-to for Rome for questions regarding Judaism. So if, if there was anything that Festus missed, because he's not a Jew, Festus is a Roman Greek who knows, I mean, he considers religion superstition. If there's anything that maybe Agrippa can catch on to that would help him. Right, okay, this is what Paul is specifically accused of. And so really this is when Paul when 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 they call Paul up before King Agrippa, it everybody attends it as if it's theater. That's all it is. It's entertainment. So I mean they didn't have a lot of things to entertain themselves back then, right? So they want to, this famous person Paul is going to speak out, and here comes all this audience. Here comes, you know, the, like I said, they were all pompous, and who knows what, what kind of uh, crazy entourage and everything that King Agrippa had, and Festus being the governor there. But you know, what strikes me, though, is, is Paul still takes this opportunity. Even though he knows this is not going to be fruitful for him, it's not going to help him, in his case, he's going to Caesar regardless of what happens here. But yet, Paul takes this opportunity. He sees who he is preaching to. He sees his audience. You know, the audience was using this opportunity to be entertained. Paul was using this this opportunity to preach Jesus Christ. Him crucified and raised again. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ that you are saved and only through him. And so, you know, two different objectives going on at the same time, and what does Paul do? He starts at his youth. So he says, "King Agrippa and my youth." Up. So he, Paul talks about his youth and his advancement through the ranks of Judaism. How he became a Pharisee. How he was at the feet of Gamaliel, the doctor of the law, the the famous famous Gamaliel. And so he starts there at the beginning of chapter 26 and he's working his way through his life and he's talking about his advancements, his achievements and you know what? These, These Jews that are here, these chief priests, these Sadducees and Sanhedrin, they know me and if they don't know me, they know of me. Because Paul was a rocket of talent for them. Paul... Tells us about his conquest against the Christians. I mean, it was a conquest. Paul took it upon himself to get letters from the high priest, to get official authority. You know, Jerusalem wasn't big enough for him to throw Christians in the jail and to be consenting unto their death and to force them to blaspheme God. uh, Paul was saying that, you know, there's so much language in the Bible. Paul uses a variety of adjectives to talk about his putrefying hatred of Christians. So if you think about the transformation of Paul's life, that's what he is bringing, the power of his testimony. Now remember who he was. He's, he's saying, you know what, I was someone who was, who was on a conquest against Christians, To put free people into prison. But now, but now, what is he? He's on a conquest for Christianity. Oh, what a difference. He's on a conquest for Christianity to put in prison people free. That's something. The, the, The really, the true people who are actually in prison are the ones who need the Lord. And so it's, he's, it's the opposite of what he's done. Think about that. He had respect. He had rank. He had a, a reputation. He was at the top of his field. He had a career. He was going out, and he was going to get his name immortalized, and who knows, maybe a, a statue of himself, just being the top Jew that there was. And he's saying, you know what? You know what changed King Agrippa was his encounter with Jesus. He had the light. Now last week we we talked about the shock. The shock. He says, King Agrippa, that during the middle of the day I saw a light that was brighter than the sun. And out of the voice. And so there was a shock. He fell down to his, his feet. Or he fell down to his face. And so all of us at one point we had the shock of salvation. Because the Lord, must, there must be a godly sorrow there before the Lord puts peace in your heart, the peace that passes all understanding. Repentance and faith, there must be a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow worketh repentance and faith. Nobody ever is saved who does not repent of their sins. No one is saved. If you have never repented of your sins, if you have never felt godly sorrow and wanted to turn away from your sins and towards God, If you've never done that, if you've never experienced that in your life, you're you're not saved. And you know what? There's a lot of good-hearted people who the Lord, praise Him, praise His grace, He will work with their heart and make them realize they're not saved. And that is not anything to be ashamed of. You know, when the Lord works in your heart, we need to get it right, get it settled. There's nothing more important than getting that right. And there's nothing embarrassing about that. Even, you see, even preachers get saved. So, uh, that is what he talked about in, in chapter 26. But we see this transformation. And that is the power of the testimony. And that is what Paul uses to preach Christ here. Now, he starts in verse 16. Well, first of all, he says in verse 15, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, And to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan and the God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So what has Paul really said so far? Paul has told everybody that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They may not have known him as the Christ and the Lord and their Savior, but they knew who he was. Wait a minute. Wasn't that the man that was just crucified and that was just executed? Isn't that the man that the the believers came, his disciples came and stole away the body because they can't find the body of Jesus? So now Paul is saying that very same Jesus of Nazareth who you crucified, who you, you uh, allowed Barabbas to escape, but you said crucify Jesus, that very same one spoke to me and gave me this commission, gave me this charge. Not only did Jesus save Paul, he changed Paul. And in verse 19 is where we left off last week because the first thing that we see here is he says, Whereupon O King Agrippa I was not obe- or disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. What was Paul's question? Paul's question to him was, What will thou have me to do? Now, I don't know if that is. Uh, okay, right here it says, Who art thou, Lord? But in chapter 9, verse 5, Paul asks Jesus a question. During this encounter, now we know Paul brings up this encounter multiple times. You don't have to churn there. But in in chapter 5, he asked Jesus, what will thou have me to do? And that was a sincere question. That's a sincere question. Because he tells King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to what Jesus told me to do. This is what I've been doing. And so in verse 20, we see that Paul says, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So I'm going to stop there for just a minute. That word repent, you know I have brought that up before. There's in the, in the Bible, the King James a version, there's two different Greek words for repent. There is a repentance, is the real repentance, it's metanoio in the Greek. It is that is the repentance unto life. That is the turning away. That's the change of a disposition of mind, of heart. Both of the words mean to turn from. That's what word repent means, is to change one's mind. And we know that that is a supernatural work of God to change our minds. Because Paul says we had a carnal mind and we're enmity against God. Jeremiah said we had a stony heart. But God, through his power of the Holy Spirit, has changed your mind. He's made you alive. And therefore you turn. You repent. That's that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Repentance. So that word there is that word. And the other word is metamelomai, and that means just sorry. Uh, Judas was sorry. If you read in the word of God, it's going to say that Judas repented. That's not the same word as here. That word about Judas was metamelomai, and it just means I was sorry. I got caught. Um, But he also says in verse 20, not only should they repent, but turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Now that word meet is worthy of. Now that's interesting. What that means is it implies repentance. This work which you do should imply that you've had true repentance. Repentance. The work which you do, it's more of about an evidence of yourself, to yourself. Have you ever had works that imply you have true repentance? Have you ever had sorrow of sin? Have you ever came to the Lord asking Him to forgive you and help you to not do that anymore? To help you give you strength? To help you overcome temptations? Because it breaks your heart when you sin against the Lord. So those are meat. That those are works. Meat for repentance. That was John the Baptist. They, they, the Pharisees came and wanted to be baptized. And John the Baptist is like, You generation of vipers. There's no works. Meat for repentance. You cannot be baptized until you've repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that is the works meet for repentance. And I, I love the, the, the deep dive, and I know you all do too. And, uh, but let's keep going. So just something to chew on there. In verse 21, this is the reason for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. It was Paul spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has raised his son, the Messiah, the Holy One, up from the dead, raised him up on the third day and that he went throughout Damascus, he went through Jerusalem. Paul, like I said, now he's on a crusade for Christianity. It's the opposite. Isn't that amazing? His testimony. It's it's, instead of a crusade against Christianity, now it's for Christianity. And you know what? This time he's giving up his rank his reputation his uh, all of those all the money his career and actually not only did he give up all those things which he used to have but he's enduring affliction and suffering and it's a powerful testimony isn't it what could make a man do this what could make a man that was on this path just completely do a 180 he had everything to lose And now he's over here and he's lost everything. Remember Paul's attitude about that. He said, I consider all that dung that I may win Christ. My life's ambition is no more about who I am in this world. My life's ambition is about gaining Jesus Christ, being conformable to my Savior's death, that I may also be conformable to His resurrection. That's what it's about. That's what tomorrow holds for me. That's what I'm excited about, and that's what I want to be. There's my ambition in life. That was Paul's ambition. In verse 22, he says, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. There's a couple things in verse 22. Notice, if you underline your Bible, notice what he says, that he has continued unto this day. You know, many times, I'm not sure if dad got it from somewhere else, but I've always remembered it. Uh, He would say, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Continue. We continue. Paul had a great beginning in Christianity, but he says, I have continued to this day. I've endured all this suffering. He didn't bring it up here, but we know. Paul endured all the suffering, false accusation, imprisonment. I mean, if you want to talk about somebody who has a list of grievances that they could be upset about and think about and worry about how he could get even with anybody, it was Paul. He was falsely accused. He was beat, and they thought he was dead, and even uh, the Jews said, away with this person. And not only a person, they called him a plague. They called Paul a plague on earth. There is This man is not even fit to live. Can you imagine having that said about you? That Paul didn't hold a grudge. Paul knew it was sin. Not only was it sin, but Paul also was a sinner. And he knew he was saved by grace. And uh, we know in Corinthians, Paul brings that up. You know, it's it's by grace. Why are you bragging about who you are or what you have when it was God who gave it to you? You've got salvation. You've got forgiveness. So, here's the thing. Let's, in our humility, not be offended by every little thing. And understand, as much as you've been offended... How much more have you offended God? But yet God forgives you. And you know what? If you meditate on the Lord's forgiveness, I remember one, one night, I would just meditate. If you meditate on any of the Lord's just beautiful, holy attributes, and you'll start praising, and you'll start worshiping, you'll realize how much the Lord has forgiven you, all of the offenses that you've made towards God, and Lord... Thank you for forgiving me. You know, a sinner like me who has been adopted, joint heir. I have the spirit of sonship with Almighty God. Lord, how could you forgive me? But how could we not forgive someone else for much less offenses? Much less. And there's a couple parables about that. We don't have time to get into them tonight. I didn't plan on preaching those parables. But, you know, and that is, is, that is what is being really communicated in verse 22 is he continued unto that day. He knew what his life was, both to small and great, uh, saying none other things. Now, here's, here is a tactic that Paul actually uses right here saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Paul is saying, you know what? Christianity is not heretical. It is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Christ is the fulfillment. This is the long and awaited and hoped for Messiah who through the Torah and the prophets and the poetry, all the Old Testament, everything has pictured that God's Son would come and that's what he says, actually, in verse 23, that Christ, the Messiah, should suffer, and that he should be the first and should rise from the dead and should show light from the, or show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. So Paul, you know what? He, he, the Jews are in agreement. Yep, that's, that's exactly what the Old Testament says. But where they're in disagreement is Paul says, this Jesus of Nazareth is this Christ. He's the fulfillment. So even Agrippa knew who the Messiah was in the Old Testament. He knew about the promises. He knew about the promises to Abraham. He knew about the covenantal promises. He knew about all, the, the Christ because it's all through here. There's three things that Paul brings up in verse 23 that Christ should suffer. You can find that in actually Isaiah 53. Now we know that he was rejected of men smitten by God. He was chastised for our peace. And then number two, that he should be the first, I'm sorry, and he should be the first that should rise from the dead. We from Psalm 1610, that he says that you will not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And that, that he should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And that's also from Isaiah chapter 42, that he would open the eyes of the blind. He would bring out the prisoners and out of darkness. Now, Paul ends his testimony here, verse 23. Now we're going to see the two responses coming for the rest of the chapter. The two responses. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, with much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. What's the first reaction we see? We see that Paul is accused of being crazy. Much learning hath made thee mad. Now remember who Festus is. Uh, Paul is telling everybody there, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah of God, and he was dead but now he's alive and Paul talked to him. So, do you remember what they did to him on Mars Hill? They laughed at Paul. They mocked him. Yeah, right. Okay. Good one, Paul. Yeah, a, a dead person came back to life and is talking to you now. And we also see Festus as a Greek. Now, we know that about Greeks, right? We know that they that they stumbled because of the wisdom. Now, I it reminds us of 1 Corinthians, which I, I love this verse. In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. Think about that. In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom, who's wisdom? they invented wisdom. we got a lot of those folks around, don't we? they got a lot of people who think they're pretty smart. By their own wisdom, they knew not God. Uh, I I love just repeating that. It takes me a minute. Hopefully, I'm not uh, wearing you out, but I'm going to say it again. In the wisdom of God, the world, by wisdom, knew not God. So it's the world's wisdom. And we see that uh, it is often brought up you know, I mean, how could this man to this Greek, now think about the, the world and, the, you know, how smart everybody is, right? And how could this man who has had all this education, that's what Festus says, and, you know, and it's, and, and don't forget or don't overlook the fact that Festus said it with a loud voice. He interrupted the whole thing. How could this educated man who, you know, Festus's mentor, you know, a couple, you remember who else was governor? Pilate. Pilate was also in the same position as Festus' here. He would have known Pilate would have sent this man to his execution, but yet this guy is talking to you, Paul. Much learning hath made thee mad. And now we see that the world will think that we're also crazy. The same thing happens. Um. You know, there's a documentary out there, and I don't know if you want to write it down. You you can't. uh, The only place I can find it nowadays is on YouTube. It's called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, Uh, 2008. It has Ben Stein in it. And what it really brings out to light is the discrimination, very severe discrimination, in the academia culture academia are the higher learning people like the astrophysicists the microbiologists the uh, visa physicists astro you know all of that stuff so that's what i when i say academia that's what i mean are these this high society of thinkers in our world today and they have a culture i mean they they all know each other they have a community and they all have these high, you know, university-level type jobs, and they're publishing these books and this finding and these research papers and everything like that. So there's a documentary that came out in 2008, and it's exposing the discrimination against Christians who believe in intelligent design. And it's a very interesting documentary. Uh, just to give you a few things, this documentary grossed over seven million, dollars, making it the 33rd highest grossing documentary film in the United States, but yet the media hates it. The media hates this film because of the claims which it makes. They say that academia today has a dogmatic commitment to Darwinism, and they compare this commitment to the party line of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The theory of evolution was necessary for the development of Nazism. This is all in this documentary. You kind of, uh, I guess you don't wonder anymore why the media condemns it. Evolutionary science is atheistic. These are all the claims that this documentary is making. Intelligent design advocates are continually persecuted in academia. So I'll give you a few names. Caroline Crocker was a former part-time cell biology lecturer at George Mason University who became the center of controversy over intelligent design. Now, when I say intelligent design, I mean creationism. You, you, you all know what I mean, right? And intelligent design is, is a big category. Creationism is a category within intelligent design. So th- this isn't even talking about creationists, where we believe God created the heavens, in six days, six literal days. We're young earth creationists, but uh, intelligent design also umbrellas those people who are just wacky, right? They think aliens created stuff. So just the intelligent design crowd is the ones being discriminated. This Caroline Crocker, she was this elite uh, and had a, a stellar career, All she did was simply mention intelligent design in her cell biology class one time, and after that, her academic career came to an end. She was blacklisted, uh, where before this incident, she would routinely get offered jobs on the spot in any interview, but afterwards, she was unable to find any work at all in academia. All she did was mention intelligent design. Robert Marx was a professor at Baylor University who had his research website shut down by the university and was forced to return all his grant money when it was discovered that he had work that related to intelligent design. Guillermo Gonzalez was an astrophysicist, and he actually went on to help discover new planets. And he had a stellar research record but he was denied tenure in April two thousand seven because of his book had one mentioned of intelligent design. The media condemned this documentary, but it's called Expelled: No Intelligence Allowed. If, if you want to look that up, it's a very interesting documentary. But it just you know it exposes this high thinking intellectual crowd. Have you all heard Richard Dawkins? He's an atheistic evolutionist. You know, he's, he's atheism all the way. And he was, you know, in this documentary, they had um, interviewed him, and he has a disdain. At, he is trying to get it to where parents are seen as unfit when they teach their children about creation. He has that big a hatred towards God. So... This is a typical response that we see the day. This, Paul, you've gone mad. You've gone crazy. Your credibility is shot because you believe in the resurrection. Um, but what does Paul say? What? Well, how's the answer in verse 25? But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. That word soberness is self-control. A mad person, a crazy person, would not have self-control. It wouldn't be long before they're talking crazy about something else. If if Paul really was crazy, this wouldn't have been the only topic he was crazy on. It wouldn't have been long. He has self-control. And he has the words of truth. And he says, verse 26, so Paul actually uses this opportunity to turn to King Agrippa. And now he's going to start uh, speaking to King Agrippa uh, straightforward. He says, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. So, uh, Festus, you being a Greek, I can kind of understand why you think all of this is nonsense. I mean, we, we know it takes the Spirit of God to penetrate anybody's heart, but these are especially those who just won't, don't have anything, they don't even pretend to be religious. But Agrippa, you know the Old Testament. You know what I'm talking about. You know who this Jesus is. And that's what he's using. So he turns and he's talking to Agrippa in verse 26. He says, before whom also I speak freely. That word freely is without constraint or a motive to be constrained Paul had no reason to constrain his words or to make up these words how could Paul why would Paul make up this story if if he could have got off if he could have just went back home you know uh, we know that uh, Paul ran into some very rough things early early in his life and early in this testimony but he kept going and he says you know what I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner, and that means in secret. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Verse 27, King Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Here's the invitation. The invitation is always a question. When you give the gospel, when you teach, if somebody is right there and you're leading someone to the Lord, you must end it with the question. Even Jesus, when he was talking to the, the Samaritan woman, he says, believest thou this? Believest thou this? Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus went to the cross? and paid for your sins as if it was only your sins and there was no one else that he paid for. As if you are the only person on earth that Jesus loves. He paid for your sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died and that he was dead for three days? He took all my sin debt and he died because Christ Jesus had to die because of my sin debt. But on the third day, God raised him up and he accepted the sacrifice which his son had done for me. And Jesus rose up the third day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord has forgiven you of your sins? Now, will you confess it? Will you tell the world? Will you tell everybody that Jesus did that for you? The invitation... Always has a question. There needs to be a question, and that's what Paul says. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now we don't know if Agrippa responded in mockery. We don't know if Agri- if Agrippa was sincere. You know, I'm just imagining him in front of everybody. He probably he's being singled out now. So what does what does this man of awesomeness say to this entertainer? He could have just all Paul, you're trying to persuade me to be a Christian. You know, his could have been that kind of response, or it could have been like Felix or like uh, yeah Felix. Remember how Felix had said that he trembled, and he says. Go. Go some other, or come back some other convenient day. That's what Felix had said to Paul. But Grippa says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. This is response number two. He avoids it. He avoids it. I'm not going to deal with that question today. I'll deal with that question another day. I've asked you the question are you going to deal with it? Or are you going to deal with it another day? And that's what we see the second type of response for Agrippa. And we know that that often happens. So finally, in verses um, 29, and Paul said, I would to God that that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty, if he had not appealed unto Caesar. There's two things which Paul shows us in Acts chapter 26, his great confidence which he has in God, his trust in God's providence. Paul did not get up and try to to defend himself with hopes to being released. He had already, we know, appealed to Caesar. Uh, We know that Paul got up with just the intention to preach Jesus Christ before the kings and the governors. It didn't matter if it was the Popper, the, the, the poor person on the street or the king? Paul was going to take the opportunity to preach. Secondly, we see the powerful transformation which God did in Paul's life. And Paul used his testimony to preach about Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to teach about Jesus. Look what God has done for me. Look at the evidence of what God has done for me. And that is the testimony. That's the testimony. You know, and a lot of, you know what? Words are cheap sometimes. But that testimony, you know, look what happened. They could not deny that Paul definitely, there was a transformation in Paul's life because look at the way he's acting. And we know James had even mentioned that, that show me your faith by your works. If you have faith and no works, you don't have faith. Because works is a response to faith. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What will God have me to do? True faith is a sincere question. And then that sincere question has a sincere obedience. Had Paul not been saved or changed, do you really think he would have kept going? I don't think so. I wouldn't have. Would you? He lost everything. He's being beaten. I mean, what's there the gain? If he had not had a true conversion. But since he is, he's a whole lot more believable. And that's what Agrippa said. Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Because I can tell that you were touched. Something's changed in your life you know that's what we see and I pray the Lord has richly blessed you in Acts chapter 26 I know that the Lord has blessed me in the studying of it and I pray the Lord just be with you and and the words that we saw tonight that they do not leave our hearts let's pray Heavenly Father thank you Lord for the day thank you Lord for your grace and your goodness to us Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for saving us. We know that you have given us a job to do. And Father, as your church, as we assemble here, Lord, we know that we are to teach and the edify all, the, all your disciples. We are to come here to love one another, to pray for each other, to build each other up. Father, to support each other. Father, where we may be a light in this community. And Father, may you just use us according to your will, to reach out to those around us and then even in our individual lives. Father, we pray, Lord, that you can use us in a mighty way to put us in the path that we need to be in where, where we can be a testimony to you, a testimony to the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, who you gave to be a sacrifice for us, to forgive us of our sins, to turn us from darkness to light. Where we may receive the inheritance. And Father, where we may have faith in you. We thank you, Lord, for your teaching of the word. Father, may it just penetrate our hearts and may the words not depart from it. We pray for those who are not able to be here tonight, who are sick. And Father, we, we pray for all those who we mentioned on the prayer list. And Lord, you know each heart and each need. And we give you all the praise and glory. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.